0: Thank you. Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Anel Shaleen of the Quincy Institute will brief us on the war in Yemen, and in something of an antidote to the overdose of miserable news, Natalia Petrozela will look at changing fashions in straight men's bodily culture. We've heard a lot about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a brutal and pointless war that deserves plenty of condemnation. We hear a lot less about the war being conducted by Saudi Arabia, with the assistance of the United Arab Emirates, on Yemen, which has killed 10,000 directly, almost 400,000 through hunger and sickness, and has pushed 16 million to the brink of starvation. Unlike the bloodletting in Ukraine, the war in Yemen is being prosecuted with U.S.-made weapons and Washington's political support, despite Biden's promise last year to withdraw that support. The Saudi Air Force could not carry on its relentless bombing campaign without parts and maintenance furnished by our government. The other guy's cruelty seem to get a lot more notice than ours do. Just making that point in the current frenzied environment can expose you to charges of whataboutism. In an excellent essay on the topic of whataboutism on the Current Affairs website, occasional behind-the-news guest Ben Burgess writes, At its best, whataboutism is actually a moral imperative. Think about the issue of what kind of sanctions should be imposed on Russia. It's important to ask, what about the invasion of Iraq? What sanctions should have been imposed in response to that? If the EU had seized some yachts and frozen some assets belonging to Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and their politically connected oil CEO friends, I would have been all in favor of it. And I'm similarly in favor of targeted sanctions on Russian oligarchs. This is still Ben Burgess speaking, not me. Would I have supported indiscriminate sanctions that imposed mass suffering on ordinary working-class Americans, though? Would you? If not, why do you support imposing them on ordinary Russians, who have even less input on their country's foreign policy than we do? These are important questions because they test what our principles actually are, and whether we actually believe in applying them only to our enemies or are willing to abide by them ourselves. That's the end of the quotation from Burgess. Looking at our policymakers and pundits, it seems that those in power believe in applying them only to our enemies. Why are the Saudis and Emiratis waging war in Yemen? And how do we explain Saudi Arabia's hold over the U.S.? How could the Saudis refuse to take a phone call from Biden, as they did the other week, given how dependent their regime is on U.S. support? To answer these questions, we're joined by Anel Shaleen, a fellow specializing in the Middle East with the Quincy Institute. She's the author of an excellent policy brief on the war that's available on the Institute's website, quincyinst.org. Shaleen, who is also a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, has done field research in Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, Qatar, the UAE, Jordan, Morocco, and Egypt. Anel Shalin. Before we get to the Yemen question, a well, more general one, what is behind uh, the U.S. indulgence of the Saudis? Certainly one of the least admirable regimes on earth. Uh, Is it their oil? Is it uh, because they buy a lot of weapons from us? It doesn't seem like they should be in such a strong bargaining position. They seem rather dependent on us in a lot of ways. So are they doing some dirty work for us? What is it? How do you explain the dynamics of this relationship?
1: Certainly... Oil does remain important, although the United States only imports about 7% of our oil from Saudi Arabia. So obviously we are no longer in the kind of situation that we were in back in the 70s or 80s when the U.S. was, was really quite dependent on Saudi and Persian Gulf oil more broadly. Now it is more about the impact just sort of on the global price of oil, knowing that the Saudis are one of the few oil producers in the world that could release Reserves could could sort of enhance their production and bring some of these prices down. That's important for Biden heading into the midterms. Um, important for Democrats. Just this concern about what Americans are paying at the pump, unfortunately, continues to to be a big driver of political dynamics. But I think more importantly than that is the fact that the Biden administration seems to have made a calculation. That in the new era that we're in of this sort of great power competition, both with Russia and more importantly with China, I just say more importantly in the sense that China is in fact uh, a much more significant rival for the United States to think about going forward, the current conflict in Ukraine notwithstanding. That initially that had been understood as this notion that the U.S. was going to shift attention away from the Middle East and, you know, the pivot to Asia. But in fact, what the Biden administration seems to have concluded is that this competition is going to play out in places like the Middle East. And so there's this big concern that if the United States either is less focused on the Middle East or doesn't prioritize relationships with our Arab security partners, that China and/or Russia will will rush in to fill that so-called vacuum. And I think this is especially unfortunate because it does lead to these kinds of odd behaviors from the. US administration where we are seeing a country like Saudi Arabia which remains almost entirely dependent on the United States for their security in terms of weapon sales. They are our biggest customer, we're their biggest supplier of weapons. Also, just in terms of things like Biden recently sending more patriot anti-missile systems that the Saudis had been requesting to deal with things like Houthi missiles and drones coming across the border. So the, the Saudis remain quite dependent on the US, as do most of the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council. And yet we're seeing the Saudis not being willing to engage with Biden, this notion of that, you know, MBS was in the room um, when his dad was on the phone and Biden asked to speak with him. MBS declined. Also that countries like the UAE, for example, abstaining in that very crucial UN Security Council vote, condemning the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, then the fact that the UAE did vote in the General Assembly to condemn kind of doesn't matter as much because UN Security Council votes matter a lot more than General Assembly votes. When it matters, we aren't necessarily seeing these countries that remain dependent on the US for security. They sort of see that the Biden administration or they feel the Biden administration is not adequately addressing their concerns. Some of this does have to do with the Biden administration's efforts to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. But even that is something of a a sort of hollow excuse, because we know that even former senior Israeli military officials have come out and said that Bibi Netanyahu pushing for Trump to withdraw from the the iran nuclear accord was one of the dumbest things that an israeli politician had ever done that this was the only deal that had successfully constrained iran's nuclear program and now israel was facing an iran that was moving increasingly closer to having the materials and and the technology necessary for a nuclear weapon um and similarly you know the we had seen diplomacy really making some progress with, between Iran and Saudi Arabia for example as well as the other members of the GCC earlier this year in addition to other sort of efforts at rapprochement what in terms of healing the the gulf rift with Qatar for example as well as Turkey and the UAE that had been on opposite sides of various conflicts they're now visiting each you know the heads of state are visiting each other and there are big commitments in terms of investments and they've really seemed to have gotten over the rivalry that had previously had them at each other's throats. And so in general, this notion that the Saudis and the Israelis and the Emiratis consider it just completely unacceptable that the U.S. would rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, I don't consider accurate. I think these countries would prefer Iran's nuclear program be constrained. They would also like additional things that Iran tends to do to be constrained For example, Iran's ongoing support for the Houthis in Yemen is something the Saudis remain very concerned about. But, you know, I think another big part of the dynamic that we're observing here has to do with the fact that rulers like Mohammed bin Salman see someone like Putin as a better ally for them. They saw what Putin did for Bashar al-Assad in Syria, where he was willing to kill scores of civilians to help keep Assad in power. And they know that the United States would not do that for them. They saw, for example, when the the Obama administration didn't do anything to prevent the fall of Mubarak in Egypt, for example, uh, during the Arab Spring. And so I think increasingly these countries that are themselves extreme autocracies, see Putin's Russia and perhaps Xi's China, similarly autocratic countries, as better and more natural allies for them, especially if an occasion should arise where the Al Saud or another of the Gulf royal families are similarly facing massive popular protests and they need assistance in squashing those. I think they know that the Americans would not be willing to start bombing civilians the way Russia was.
0: Okay, now let's turn to the the war in or on Yemen. What are the roots of the war, and why is Saudi Arabia pummeling the country so relentlessly for so long?
1: The Saudi-led intervention began almost exactly seven years ago. Prior to that intervention, we had seen the Houthi rebels take control of the capital city of Sana'a in 2014. This all followed several years of unrest in the context of the Arab Spring. So it it wasn't like Egypt or Tunisia where the president stepped down in a matter of days. But eventually, Yemen's president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, was prevailed upon. To finally let go of power after decades in power. And there was a, an effort made that was supported by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council members um, to help Yemen transition to a sort of more just political system. And unfortunately, the, the outcome of, of that, the National Dialogue Conference, as it was called, and the, the interim president, the Houthi rebels felt that they their interests were not being adequately reflected in the federal system that had. been decided for the future of Yemen. And so they adopted violence to pursue their objective. At the time, I think they they wanted just sort of a bigger piece of the pie. The question now is, are they seeking to establish total control over Yemen? This this would be very difficult for them just because the Houthis themselves are Zaydi Shia. And so there there are large portions of Yemen that are primarily inhabited by Sunnis, where it would be difficult for them to establish control there. So that's kind of the origins of the war. The Houthis seized the capital, and because Saudi Arabia was afraid that Iran was providing support for the Houthis, they used this to justify their invasion and and to lead a coalition of Arab countries. Against Yemen in 2015. At this point, it's mostly just the Saudis and the UAE with Sudanese mercenaries that continue to wage this war. Most of the other countries have withdrawn or or are only very minimally still involved. Right from the beginning, the U.S., under the Obama administration back in 2015, supported what the Saudis were doing. The Saudi Air Force essentially cannot fly without U.S. support from U.S. military contractors providing spare parts and maintenance. Two-thirds of the Saudi Air Force is U.S. made. The other third is U.K. made. If President Biden wanted to, he could suspend those contracts and tell the Saudis, we're not going to help you continue to destroy Yemen. And he could ground two-thirds of the Saudi Air Force, ostensibly, I guess the U.K. could Continue to provide support, but if if Biden really made this a priority, I imagine the UK would probably go along with the American lead here. Um, and unfortunately, that is that is not what we're seeing. Although a year ago, over a year ago, when Biden came into power, he said that the US was going to end support for our offensive military actions. However, we've continued to see ongoing U.S. support for these offensives. Again, as I said, because the Saudis could not operate the majority of their air force without ongoing uh, and consistent U.S. assistance. We've also seen the Biden administration authorize over a billion dollars in new weapon sales to the Saudis over the past year, again, after Biden had said he was going to end relevant arms sales. The Biden administration has said that these are defensive weapons. They've never really defined what that means, and. I just recently published a brief that goes into the specifics of of how if the U.S. is helping the Saudis to defend themselves, that gives them greater impunity to then attack Yemen and to not necessarily face the consequences. Although we did see over the weekend, for example, there was a major Houthi attack on the seventh anniversary of the war on Saturday That struck an oil on Aramco facility near the city of Jeddah that almost disrupted a Formula One race that was scheduled to take place there, although it did end up happening. There were no uh, casualties, which is common. The attacks of the Houthis over the course of the past seven years at the last count had only killed 59 people in Saudi Arabia. It is unfortunate that they killed 59. But when you think about the scale of the civilian devastation of the hundreds of Saudi airstrikes that happen over the course of, of any given month. It's 10,000 dead. It's another 10,000 wounded. It's 400,000 Yemenis killed as a result of sort of the broader structural factors having to do with lack of access to food, to clean water, to medical assistance. And and so the, the Biden narrative has sort of painted the Houthis' as really being these intractable aggressors here, that they're the ones that keep firing these transporter attacks, etc. And very little is said about the fact that the Saudis' attacks are, are of such a greater magnitude, they're much more frequent, they're much more devastating. It just sort of boggles the, the mind <laughs> And the Biden administration just keeps portraying what the Houthis are doing as the problem here. I mean, it, it is a problem, but what the Saudis are doing is just so much greater in terms of magnitude and devastation and the impact it's having on the, the Yemeni civilian population.
0: I'm speaking with Anel Shaleen, a research fellow specializing in the Middle East at the Quincy Institute in Washington. He's saying that uh, policy brief, there are no good guys in the war and the Houthis themselves seem like they're not <laughs> strong candidates for a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, what is their, their slogan? God is great. Death to America. Death to Israel. Curse the Jews. Victory to Islam. They're accused of all kinds of human rights violations, child soldiers, targeting civilians, etc. So yeah, who exactly are they? Uh, what's their aim? How big are they? Uh, what's their strategy?
1: Houthis, very credibly accused of war crimes, as are the Saudis and Emiratis and the, the Southern Transitional Council, kind of, there, there are no good guys in this war. They're often not good guys in any war, that every side commits atrocities. Um, but the, the Houthis, essentially, they would like to reestablish. Control. Historically, the, the Houthis had a status in sort of the, the pre-Republic era of Yemen, back when an Imam ruled the former North Yemen, that gave descendants of the Prophet Muhammad this particular status in Yemeni society. And so the Houthis would like to sort of re-establish that ruling system. And so there are many in Yemen who are opposed to that. They say, no, we don't really want to go back to this archaic form of rule where if you're a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, you get these special privileges. The Houthis, in many ways, I compare to the Taliban, to the extent that they are religious ideologues, they subjugate women, they are very conservative, but also that unfortunately they they sort of carry the banner as as the the defenders of the nation against these foreign occupiers. And so similarly to what we observed in Afghanistan, where you had many Afghans who did not want the Taliban to come back into power, but eventually decided that they would rather survive under draconian Taliban rule than continue to be killed and have their families be killed by the American occupation, which is what was happening. And similarly in Yemen, I think you know there are many, many people who reject the Houthis' efforts to establish political control, But for now, they will fight alongside them or they will support what the Houthis are doing because they are the only real actor right now pushing back against these devastating ongoing Saudi-led airstrikes as well as airstrikes from the UAE. And so, again, it's just ironic because kind of the longer the war goes on, the more the Houthis consolidate power the more likely it is that they would not be willing to necessarily establish a power-sharing agreement because they will feel that they can achieve their objectives on the battlefield. They're going to probably continue to get stronger. Iran will probably continue to increase its support. Whereas if the Saudis had ended their bombardment years ago, Iran wouldn't really have had much of an incentive to necessarily continue their support for the Houthis. I mean, it's important to not be confused and think of the Houthis as this Iranian proxy. I mean, they they had already existed. And even if Iran did withdraw all support for the Houthis, it's not clear that the Houthis would stop what they're doing. Their, their objectives are internal to Yemen. Hopefully, Iran could be useful in trying to perhaps convince the Houthis to move towards a more conciliatory position. We saw that over the weekend that the Houthis uh, declared a unilateral three-day ceasefire following their big attack on Jeddah and then the subsequent Saudi bombardment that followed. The Houthis said, look, if next three days we're ending our attacks on Saudi Arabia, as well as our ground operations inside Yemen, and you Saudis can extend this ceasefire if you stop bombing us, stop bombing Yemen, uh, and lift the blockade which the Saudis have also imposed on the Yemen's Red Sea ports, which is preventing food and fuel from coming into Yemen and is a big factor in why we're seeing such massive levels of starvation in Yemen. And yet, unfortunately, we're the, from the U.S. government's perspective, they, they continue to sort of portray the Houthis as the, the main impediments to peace here, even though we've seen the Houthis now declare this ceasefire. Because it just doesn't fit their narrative that, that the Houthis are the problem and, and the Saudis really want to get out of this war. In general, I think the, the U.S. Is, has decided that it makes more sense to continue to support Saudi objectives in Yemen than to actually try to end the war.
0: Now, you mentioned the blockade, which is causing immense amounts of um, hunger and sickness in, uh, in Yemen, but also the Saudis and uh, UAE have been targeting civilian targets for bombing too, right?
1: Yes, where the target can be determined, about half of them are civilian. This is uh, coming from the Yemen data project that keeps track of, of all of these coalition bombings.
0: So the result is mass hunger uh, and mass sickness, right?
1: Yes. So this this is why we're seeing such you know numbers in the approaching half a million people that have already died. We have anywhere from 16 million to 19 million people um, at risk of starvation currently just incredibly food insecure and famine-like conditions spreading. Um, Unfortunately, this is likely to get worse in part because of the conflict going on in Ukraine, that because both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat, and that has been disrupted by the war, we're seeing wheat prices start to rise. And so humanitarian aid for Yemen was already grossly underfunded, and we're just going to continue to see cuts to that as it, it just becomes unaffordable to even provide food assistance. And yes, just in general, the the airstrikes have targeted whether it's electricity facilities, or water treatment facilities, or food production facilities, or hospitals and homes. Life has broken down because not only is so much of the infrastructure is destroyed, but also because there's no fuel to run anything, to to run cars, to transport aid, to run generators, to try to keep. Um, hospitals running. So the the blockade, unfortunately, is, is something that the UN continues to condone, that the UN has helped establish this blockade back in 2015 to prevent Iran from smuggling weapons to the Houthis. But the Saudis sort of impose an additional um, level of Restriction on the blockade. So, the UN established this verification mechanism that inspects imports to Yemen to make sure that there are not Iranian weapons on board. And then, af- after they've been inspected, the, the goods should be able to make their way into Yemen. But instead, the Saudis routinely block or delay or divert these ships, for example, such that we haven't seen any fuel coming into Yemen's Red Sea ports since January 3rd of this year.
0: You um, write in the piece or in the uh, the policy brief that uh, American officials have long asserted that the Saudis want to withdraw from Yemen, but only if they can avoid the humiliation of defeat. Now, are we shielding Saudi pride or is that uh, a lie?
1: This is what the Saudis have said, that they would like to get out of the war, but they, you know, they have to maintain a scrap of dignity. You know, it's a little bit like the U.S. withdrawing from Vietnam or Afghanistan, where, we just had to admit that we had lost and that, you know, the longer the war dragged on, the more it became apparent that, that we had lost. And so our understanding at the end of last year was that the Biden administration had signaled to the Saudis that they were going to provide some more support for kind of one last big push to allow the Saudis to sort of make a final stand and and hopefully then withdraw with some dignity, having been able to retake some territory and maybe put the Houthis on the, the back foot. Um, and as a result, we saw a huge increase in the Saudi coalition airstrikes in in December and then more in January and more in February. So just really devastating numbers that we hadn't seen for, for several years that the coalition had really started to sort of walk back the level of airstrikes they were conducting, in part because we had seen pushback from from Americans. We'd seen Congress uh, successfully pass a War Powers Resolution in 2019 to end U.S. support for the war. Trump then vetoed that, uh, so it didn't go into effect. But the the Saudis were aware of the fact, especially after the the murder of Hashoji, that the war that their war on Yemen was getting attention, and they started to reduce the number of of attacks carried out in order to avoid some of those headlines, things like where they had bombed a, a school bus full of children, for example. Um, I believe that was a Lockheed Martin bomb. But now we've seen those numbers tick tick way back up as the Biden administration really seems to have come down even harder on the side of the Saudis and and to say that yes, we will, we will help you. We'll continue to sell you more weapons. We will continue to provide these Patriot anti-missile systems. We support what you're doing in Yemen, which is just truly shocking, given, given what it is that the Saudis are doing in Yemen.
0: So what's the way out of this? I mean, you just talked a bit, bit about the ceasefire. If the U.S. just said uh, no more airplane parts, stop this, could we see this misery come to an end or at least uh, greatly reduced?
1: Absolutely. So if if Biden wanted to, he could tomorrow say, we're canceling these contracts. He could he could do what he said he was going to do, which was to end U.S. support for Saudi offensives, which he has not done. So ending those contracts, um, ending the you know the ongoing sale uh, and, and new weapons sales. There are many weapons sales in the pipeline that are ongoing. You know he could he could pause those or end those, and this this would not end all of the violence in Yemen, um, but it would move the conflict back into the hands of Yemenis, if if the Saudis were no longer able to bomb and the, the Emiratis were no longer involved, then Iran would have less of an incentive to pour what limited resources they have into supporting the Houthis, and control of the conflict would be returned to Yemenis, at which point they would then have to make a calculation based on sort of the limited resources available to them. We know this about civil wars in general. That when when f- external foreign resources pour into a conflict, those are the conflicts that that can last for decades. Whereas, if it really if if the scope of the the resources available is just limited to to what the warring parties on the ground have access to inside their own country, they're going to run out of fighters. They're going to run out of weapons. Um, they they will have to start to negotiate with each other, and uh, there there again my analysis of this is that a big part of why the Houthis have accumulated support is because of this narrative that they are defending Yemen. Whereas if the foreign uh, military actions were to cease, the Houthis wouldn't have that narrative anymore. And then they would face more internal dissent from others in Yemen who would say, yeah, we are fighting on your side against those guys. But now that it's just us Yemenis here, we're not willing to have you be in charge. Um, And so we're much more likely to see a power sharing agreement that actually reflects what the the, sort of the realities of Yemeni politics and and what which actors on the ground could realistically hold power. One other thing to, to keep in mind here is that the UN has established the Saudis and the Houthis as the two sort of main combatants in the group. And so that's who would would sit down if there were UN led talks. But there are many others in Yemen who wouldn't then be represented. And the, you know why, why should Saudi Arabia necessarily have a seat at the table anyway? This really should be returned to, to the Yemenis to decide the future of their country. So the point being, if the U.S. withdrew support, that could then help the conflict move towards a point where then internal Yemeni negotiations could finally start to take place at the negotiating table and not just being waged on the battlefield.
0: Okay, well, thank you. People don't really know much of anything about this war. It's uh, amazing how this can go on with so much U.S. support and people just don't know.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I think a big big part of that is we haven't necessarily seen the, the same kind of refugee numbers. Yemenis, they're not able, you know, as, as Syrians were able to, to sort of flee on foot and in boats. Um, and Europe then was, you know, had to deal with what Bashar al-Assad was doing to his people, Yemenis can't do that. <laughs> they really have nowhere to go. There are millions that are internally displaced um, and and many many that are just suffering and dying uh, without anyone paying attention.
0: That was Anel Shaleen, a research fellow specializing in the Middle East at the Quincy Institute in Washington. You can find her policy brief on the Yemen war on the Institute's website, quincyinst.org. Quincyinst, her personal website, com, that's A-N-N-E-L-L-E hyphen Shaleen S-H-E-L-I-N-E dot com, not only features her writing and other work, it also includes some lovely photos she took on visits to the Middle East. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Christoph Penderetzi's Threaty for the Victims of Hiroshima, with the composer conducting the Polish Radio National Symphony Orchestra. He wrote it in 1961. It's scored for 52 string instruments. With so much misery in the news, I felt like we all needed a break. I don't want to say that what follows is trivial. It's not, though some hardcore political types might find it so. Gendering is a serious and deeply materialist business. My next guest, Natalia Petrozela, is an associate professor of history at the New School in Manhattan and a columnist for Observer.com. It was a column on that site about changing standards of fitness and self-care for straight cis men that inspired me to get in touch with her. Her book in the history of fitness culture in the U.S. will be published by the University of Chicago Press in December. Natalia Petrozela. Let's talk about manliness or masculinity. Yes. Perfect. will studiously avoid any questions of uh, the Oscar slap because... Uh,
2: Uh, I mean, I can talk about it I just don't know how much I have to really add Well, it's a tired topic And by Thursday
0: it's going to be, you know, ready for the ICU Um, I think so I was um, amused to be reminded that bodybuilders used to be mocked And uh, what, 1977, Arnie Schwarzenegger wanted to assure us That uh, just because he's a bodybuilder didn't make him faggy Um, Yeah, what about that? Uh, What was about the cultural position of bodybuilders uh, 40, 50 years ago?
2: Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, men who engaged in bodybuilding were seen as kind of freaks and as deviant and as abnormal and as kind of, you know, sexually deviant in particular. And the origins of that argument are that um, any man who spends that much time on his body is not engaged in kind of one serious cerebral work, but two is engaged in womanly concerns of aesthetics. And so you see like as bodybuilding, you know gains greater visibility in the United States through like the 1940s and fifties muscle beach becomes like something that people talk about, like it's on TV that's in Life Magazine. There's all of this dissing going on. I'm um, talking about these guys as one like muscle bound and not as a compliment, but like literally imprisoned by their muscles. And in coverage of like bodybuilding competitions, you know, coverage should be like, congratulations to the guy who won this. It's like, well, this guy might have bulging muscles, but he pays greater attention to how to shave his chest than to his economic future. And so there's a <laughs> lot of sense that men who are that concerned with their bodies are deviant and abnormal and definitely not appropriately masculine.
0: And that was before the days of steroids.
2: Definitely, definitely before the days of like the kind of steroid abuse that we see today, for sure.
0: I was struck reading that bit in your column uh, about, uh, I was reminded of, uh, there was a book came out, I can't remember, twenty. Some years ago, Masculinity at Harvard, I think it was called. Uh, And it was about how in the late 19th, early 20th century, men of the upper classes were worried that they were getting too soft, too cerebral, in other words, and they need to be manly. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a leading example of how to counter that creeping softness. So so men went from being worried about being too soft to be worrying about not being cerebral enough. I don't really get what happened in the intervening 80 years or whatever.
2: Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So the turn of the century anxiety that people that you're describing was that in this moment of a lot of immigration, and in the kind of post emancipation of slavery moment, there was a lot of concern among white men who were supposed to be, you know, these civilized stewards of society, that there were all of these dudes who were much brawnier and stronger than they were. And this, was not just an aesthetic problem, but this was going to contribute to the downfall of the white race. And so you see some of these like early exercise and strength training enthusiasts trying to create these programs for white men, which are saying like, well, basically like you know you're doing important, appropriately manly cerebral work, but therefore you have to cultivate your body. But cultivating your body doesn't mean doing like brute physical labor work. It means engaging in sports or to a certain extent, like lifting weights. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was like a real booster of this kind of thing through football, hunting, uh, what he called the strenuous life, all of these kind of physical activities, which were not about aesthetics, but they were about like cultivating like a little bit of savagery and brutality and violence sensibilities that he thought were appropriately masculine and that were imperiled paradoxically by doing office work and doing cerebral work. So that's happening kind of early in the century. And I think that kind of like explains a little bit where all of this ambivalence and anxiety comes from. But then by the time that I'm talking about, you know, as you have like a culture of of some men who are involved, not necessarily in football or in hunting or in those kind of pursuits, which which are pretty much culturally accepted as appropriate and like proper activities for red blooded white American men, but they're involved in bodybuilding, which is, about aesthetics like this is maybe splitting hairs for a non-specialist audience but bodybuilding prevails in the United States over something called weightlifting so both of them involve lifting heavy things but weightlifting is about how much you can lift bodybuilders compete for what you look like (laughs) so they're both lifting weights but bodybuilding is more about the aesthetics bodybuilding prevails in the United States and because it's so much about the aesthetics and it's not connected to these more traditional pursuits like hunting football Et cetera, It is seen as really, really superstitious and superstitious. I should say, well into the 1970s. I mean, that quote by Arnold Schwarzenegger that you're talking about. This is when there's like a feature film pumping iron made about bodybuilding. Like by then, it had, it was something that people knew about um, and was like sort of mainstream. But there still was that residual sense that like there's something wrong with these guys. Like they're too into their bodies. Like um, you know, this is not um, this is not appropriately masculine.
0: I saw that movie very, very long ago, but one thing I recall about it was that Arnie seemed a whole lot smarter than the other guys in the movie, and he was toying with them all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, Yeah, he came off, I think you could, looking retrospectively and seeing the kind of tremendous career he's had, you could tell that he was kind of destined for more than the gym, not to cast aspersions on the gym, but I do think it's interesting the way when he talks about um, his past and his coming up to the bodybuilding world, he's someone who really saw um, that part of his life as like almost a template for what he's doing elsewhere. Like, you know, this project of self-fashioning wasn't just about having big muscles and winning titles. It was, about kind of individualism and motivation and initiative and all of these sort of like American dreamlike sensibilities. And I think, you know, he would say that he applies those in, in, in more traditional pursuits like uh, acting or in politics, too.
0: And how did the, uh, the guys in the, uh, the bodybuilding muscle beach subculture see themselves when the rest of society was looking askance at them? What was their self-image?
2: Well, it's a good question. I think, you know, some of them, I think, like saw themselves as sort of Superman and kind of people who had figured out the good life. I mean, here are guys who are spending a lot of their time in the sunshine, working on developing their muscles, looking good. They have Hollywood ambitions, a lot of them, and some of them are actually realizing them. And so there is a little bit of what you see today of the kind of like self-satisfied superiority of like super fit people who are like like, you know, kind of looking down their nose at people who don't look like them or don't devote that much time to their bodies. That being said, I think they were also, though, pretty aware that they were really in a minority and that most people did not really understand what they were, what what the kind of thing that they were into. I mean, to give you a sense, like I say people were fl- Flocking to Muscle Beach in the 1940s and 50s, but they were flocking to Muscle Beach to like see performances. Not that many of those people who were going there were like, "Oh, I want to look like that," or "I let me get in there and work in with you." They were thinking like, "Wow, look at these like peculiar California specimens who spend all <laughs> their time working out." And there are these two brothers um, who are very famous characters there: um, uh, Vic and Armand Tanny. And Vic Tanny might ring a bell to you or some of your listeners, but he was. The The um, founder of uh, one of the first kind of chain gyms in the United States. And he talks about when he and his brother started their first gym early on in like the late 1930s, they were so proud when they opened up the doors. And the people who stopped in were like, So, how does this work? Do we pay to watch you lift those things? (laughs) Like the idea that they would come in and like work out themselves was really, really alien. So, that's just to say that they knew that they were part of a subculture, but a lot of them resisted strenuously the idea. Idea that like this was outre, or that this was really sleazy, because that's what was being put on them. Like Muscle Beach got thrown out of Santa Monica, its original location in the 1930s, um, in the 1950s, because these Santa Monica conservatives prevailed, um, making this argument. You know, these are they called them sexual athletes, queers. They're undesirable. They're, they do not befit the the kind of moral environment that we want to create in Santa
0: Monica. I'm speaking with the historian Natalia Petrozela. It's striking though, how the fitness standards have changed. If you look back at pictures of actors or models from the 50s and 60s, 70s even, um, they look flabby compared to those of today. We really expect people yeah. to be in much better shape than we did, or at least the people we, look, we pay to look at, than we did you know, 30, 40 years ago.
2: I think that's absolutely right, and that's like you know one of the many ways that inequality shows up in our country is in people's bodies, um, and in this kind of extremism that's that's come to exist. You're absolutely right that celebrity fitness imagery is much more aggressive and extreme today than it ever was back then. I mean, the people on Muscle Beach at Muscle Beach, some of them looked like sort of Superman heroes, but a lot of them looked like somebody you might see working out at the Y or at Equinox. You know, they didn't look like these like pumped up specimens that we see today. On the other hand, today we have all sorts of ill health problems and lack of fitness in this country among the masses. So you both have, as you say, the people that we pay to look at who look much more extreme and cut and super fit than they did back then, but your everyday person is much less so.
0: Okay. So let's uh, get back to the Muscle Beach guys. Feminism and gay liberation came in the 60s and 70s. Um, what did that do to the uh, the whole uh, bodybuilding uh, culture?
2: It's interesting. So I would say in terms of gym culture overall, it expanded it dramatically. And a lot of um, women and gay men, quite honestly, like um, became impresarios and entrepreneurs in the fitness space and really began mainstreaming um, fitness culture. And you see a lot of them behind starting some of the workout programs that became much more mainstream, not Muscle Beach, but, you know, fitness studios like Jazzercise or health clubs and health spas. And so you see some of that kind of aesthetic of bodily cultivation that I would say that was definitely sort of subcultural kind of coming into the mainstream. And I think ideologically, um, particularly particularly in terms of gay liberation. Part of what is going on there is that, you know, things that were associated with, you know, effeminacy or um, secret subversive places where gay men were thought to congregate become less kind of taboo. So aspects of gay male culture become kind of absorbed and, uh, you know, shape kind of mainstream fitness culture.
0: Yeah, I was going to say a lot of men are anxious about gay culture, but a lot of men also adopted parts of it.
2: Absolutely. And I think it's like so, it's a real absence in our understanding of modern fitness culture, which by the way, can be pretty homophobic, to not realize how much gay men's culture shaped it. And I would say that that goes for um, the way gay men's health clubs shaped kind of gym culture today, but also, you know, they were very closely connected to nightlife culture. And I think that also, especially in the 1980s, but even beyond, um, shaped gym culture too. I mean, there's certain gym owners and uh, entrepreneurs who talk about the fact that like they would glean their list for the nightclubs based on their membership in um, uh, in gyms. Right. And so it was a way to kind of have like really fit kind of beautiful people be at the club, the health club, but also at the nightclub. And those things were really closely connected.
0: What did the metrosexual wave, a word the dictionary tells me was coined in the early 90s but didn't really enter the culture until the Queer Eye TV show a decade later, what did that do to straight men's sense of bodily cultivation?
2: Yeah, well, I think metrosexual, you know, in some ways you can think of it as a slur. And I'm sure some people has, you have used it like that. And it's certainly like a little bit of poking fun. But it effectively speaks to a man who has a kind of refined aesthetic sensibility. By the time that it starts getting used in, 19, in the 1990s and like into the 2000s, it is evocative of a moment when caring about fashion, spending money on skincare, going to the gym, caring about Cooking um, things like this, which had often been considered the realms of women or of gay men, is no longer considered suspicious for a kind of red-blooded straight man. And so it is considered novel enough to have a label like metrosexual, but not, you know, disqualifying from like mainstream society. And let me contrast that with that uh, in this uh, in my column in The Observer, which brought this conversation to, to light between us. You know, I talk about this one article in the early 70s. 70s in Good Housekeeping, where this man like has this sort of confessional. He's straight, and he talks about like his new routine, which involves massage and facial and exercise. And he kind of feels the need to declare, "There's not one thing that's feminine about it. I'm not ashamed at all." And it's so funny because by the time Metrosexual rolls around, and then even becomes more mainstream, it's like, "What's the big deal, man? You like to get go for a steam and get a massage and like go work out at the gym, like." you don't need to declare that and kind of like pronounce your masculinity. It's, uh, it's, it's no longer considered beyond the realm of what's acceptable.
0: Now that we're moving uh, beyond the gender binary, how are cosmetics and the whole regime of self-care being recoded in this non-binary world?
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, there's something about this conversation which feels like so binary, right? It's like about like dancing around these borders between male and female and masculine and feminine. Um, you know, what got me interested to write about this for this column and, and it's connected to work I, I, I that's in my forthcoming book about fitness was, um, you know, this kind of like, Aggressively macho marketing of things that were considered like women's concerns, whether it's diet food or skincare or exercise programs. It's not like lose inches off your abs. It's like lose inches off your abs so you can attract the hottest chick ever, or like not just wash your face so you won't get wrinkles, but you know. Like a military operation, you will scrub the you know the grime from your pores like it's uh, uh, spoken of in this very masculine way now one thing that, that this traditionally masculine way One thing that is really interesting to your point is that in the most recent um, kind of spate of products in the skincare realm, you actually see um, some brands which are sort of dispensing with all of that and adopting a kind of gender neutral sensibility either explicitly by saying, you know, the idea that taking care of your face is girly. It's just like stupid and over. These are skincare products, you know, for everyone or in packaging where men's products, women's products are all sort of like pale green. There's no real distinction among them. So I think that slowly but surely, there is this kind of move away from like, we're going to make skincare and the rest like really macho and make it okay, to for certain market segments, um, we're going to kind of, you know, lean into the fact that people are questioning gender in a lot of ways and and create like more gender neutral products and and marketing.
0: But of course, you do need the product to make it happen.
2: (laughs) That's right. You need the product. Absolutely. And also, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but I also think that it is interesting to think about like, not all products are the same and work equally well, depending on your biology, like without making too too controversial of a statement here, there are certain products which are ridiculous to be differentiated by gender. And there are others that make a little more sense. I mean, I think of like in the fitness apparel realm, like it was a huge deal in a very positive way for um, athletic outfitters to make clothing that kind of fit women better, right? Sports bras, shorts that were cut in a way that sort of like conformed to a woman's curve so that they wouldn't chafe as much, et cetera. And I've seen some sort of progressive athletic apparel retailers be like, this is our new gender neutral line. And it effectively looks like a bunch of men's t-shirts and basketball (laughs) shorts. And I'm like, this is not necessarily progress. Like there's some things where it's ridiculous to highly differentiate between genders, but there are others where actually it makes sense and you're actually serving a real need by um, acknowledging that there are differences in people's bodies and and, and the products that are needed to serve them.
0: At the end of the uh, column, you raised the question, uh, is this progress? Is it?
2: Look, I think it's progress in the sense that I think it's good that men can express themselves in a greater range of ways than was the case 15, 20, 40 years ago. Great. You want to be a guy who washes your face with $30 face wash like you should be able to do that spend your money on that and no one should question your sexuality or your masculinity because of that. On the other hand, on this particular issue, women, gay men have so long, always had little choice but to be subject to this whole beauty industry constantly telling us, oh, you're not pretty enough. If you just like wash away that wrinkle with this cream or, or, you know, this solve. then maybe you'll be happy that it seems that expanding those pressures to encompass um, straight men too, who work, you know, um, had a reprieve from that or, or were spared that, I'm not quite sure that's progress. I think it's actually worth sort of evaluating the whole industry and the broader framework um, before declaring that it's so great
0: that straight men are now encompassed within it too. But a lot of men have been getting away with looking like schlubs forever. I don't always want to look at that. Part of me has a little bit of I said in the piece, like you
2: know, revanchist glee, where I'm like, oh, sorry, buddy, you don't get to look like a schlub either. You get, you know, you you now have to worry about this stuff too. There's total privilege in not having to wear to worry about this stuff. There's total privilege in a society that has told men, oh, you just pre- you know, preoccupy yourself with the life of the mind. This stuff is below you. We care what's on the inside. Like, come on, you know that 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 is privilege. And I think these issues are not these issues are so sort of funny, like to even spell, you know, 1200 words on skincare, but um, I don't think they are like superficial or silly. And they raise these real questions about power and aesthetics and capitalism and all the rest. So hopefully I got some people, you know, thinking a little bit more about their, their skincare routines and the assumptions that they make about themselves and others.
0: That was Natalia Petrozela, Associate Professor of History at the New School in Manhattan and columnist for Observer.com. Her book, Fit Nation, will be published in December. Her previous book is about the politics of public schools, and she was on the show last November to talk about how those conflicts are playing out around COVID restrictions. Her personal website is at nataliapetrzela, N-A-T-A-L-I-A-P-E-T-R-Z-E-L-A dot com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, the raincoats cover of The Kinks' Lola. Till next week, bye.
1: Just like cherry cola, C O L A cola. She walked up to.